Was she holding up a diaper? What is that? Her toilet. <laughs> okay. Showing me the contents of her toilet. <laughs> Just so that it's clear, this is a real mom podcast <laughs> with real children. All of us right now currently have three-year-olds that have just decided that like sleep isn't a thing that they need anymore. Never. And Megan, as she just mentioned, being solo does not have a partner to volley that three-year-old to. So. No. so she's just standing in the doorway, staring at me, <laughs> and she will be for the next hour. <laughs> she has headphones on too. Just to work on her own And I hear podcast. your daughter. Yeah. She's yeah, that's what my daughter told me yeah. yesterday morning. She woke up and we're getting dressed for school and she goes, um, mommy, I'm going to be working on my own podcast. I will come get you at school at the end of the day, but daddy and I are going to stay here and do working on my own podcast. And then she climbed up into a really tall desk chair and I have no idea how she got into it and proceeded to use a stud finder <laughs> that I don't even know why it's on the <laughs> desk <laughs> to like wipe across the keyboard and tell me she was working on her own podcast. Say, girl, we do not need any any more podcasts. <laughs> I'm not editing it. Good luck. Welcome to Montessori Moms in the Wild. We are three trained Montessori guides and new moms. We are not here to be your guide per se, but simply to share, commiserate, and maybe even inspire each other on this wild journey. Each episode, we will discuss a different element of the Montessori philosophy, explaining why it is one we find so important and interesting and then take turns being blatantly honest about how we succeed and struggle with these practices in real life. There is no Montessori album for parenthood, and we are certainly in no shape to write one. Our hopes are that together we can remind ourselves of what is important to us as Montessorians and as mothers in a way that might help other parents, or at least entertain them. So sit back and relax as we take Montessori out of the textbooks and into the wild. Welcome everyone. My name is Laura. I am assumed to be mother of two with my Montessori training in lower and upper elementary, which is ages six to 12. I am here tonight with Rachel, mother of two with her Montessori training in infant toddler, which is birth through three years old. And Megan, mother of two with her training in lower elementary ages six to nine. And she is currently working on her primary training, which is ages three to six. So Let's start by catching up. What has everyone been up to? This week has felt so long. I don't know why, but for us, it's felt really long, but so happy for this like spring weather in February. Oh man, it has been so nice out where we live. It's like in the 70s in February. The best. So that's been nice. I've had some things happen this week just for our family that maybe are good things happening. And then my child threw up tonight. So oh, so the week ended with a bang. The week ended with a bang. Nothing like Friday night throw up. <laughs> Friday night puke sessions. Who doesn't love it? And we all have agreed that vomit is like the worst thing too. We always end up going back to bodily fluids, but... <laughs> can't help it. Like Megan said, once you're a mom, there's just a lot of fluids coming out of a lot of people <laughs> a lot of the time. It is so true. So it sounds like a roller coaster week, Rachel. Some potentially really exciting things happening for the future and cool stuff for the family. And then finally made it to Friday for her child to, I believe the exact words you used in our group text were, it, it's like a waterfall of vomit. It was literally <laughs> like a waterfall. And I just stood there and watched it because I literally was like, what do I do in this moment uh, right now? There's nothing. You can't just stop it. it. Like, yeah, it's just got to happen. Because also if you start freaking out and then they're freaking out while they're 
they're vomiting. Like, oh God, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's the worst. All right. Well, I'll go next and say that my week has just been completely defined by the insane nesting instinct that is going for me right now, like out of control nesting issues. That's really good, though, because in like a week, you're never going to want to do anything again. And then you're going to be so grateful that you had this nesting instinct. It's true. You got to take advantage of the little bursts of energy where mm-hmm. you can get it because the this last chunk of pregnancy. So I am 36 weeks as of tomorrow, basically. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So that means, you know, he's fully cooked in another week from yeah. this weekend. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rachel, when did Finley come at like 36? 37, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of what you want to make it to, right? Like lung development wise and stuff. There's a good chance there won't be any NICU stay if you can make it to 37. So, you know, and I'm I'm pretty sure we'll make it to that. My daughter came at 38. Megan, yours must have too, right? Yeah. But I'm trying not to get it set in my head that he's going to come early because I don't want to be devastated when he doesn't come early. No, after 38 came and went the second time, I was miserable. Yeah. Uh I was like, no, 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 no. I've never been pregnant for this long before and I do (laughs) not like it. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. The same thing happened to Rachel with her second. I was 38 and a half. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, you're kidding me. Yeah. Which still, a lot of people make it to 42. They would happily take 38 and a half. But I do have a weird instinctual feeling that we won't make it all the way to the due date. But Either way, it's coming. And so, you know, that panic has just set in. Like, I have all this stuff I have to do, which is honestly not even all that much stuff. The one big, big, big project was my daughter has been for her whole life in the nursery. She's been on a floor bed now in the nursery, but the crib is still in there. And like the changing table and all the things that I really want to keep as part of the nursery, which meant that we spent last weekend and early into this week setting up her big girl toddler room and eviction notice. Bye. Basically. (laughs) While she could still be excited that it was something she wanted to do and not like, oh, this baby arrived and now I am booted from my own bedroom. Like, this is bull. So yeah, we had to clear out what was our guest room. And it was just such a project, you know, because you've stored a bunch of stuff in like that closet and under that bed and in that room and in those nightstands. And now that's all got to get moved to somewhere else. But you have a pile of something everywhere that you could potentially go to. So it's just a multiple day project of clearing out closets and like finally coming up off a of junk that we haven't even touched in like the six years that we've lived in this house, which was great and cathartic and like a really nice purge. That always feels really nice. It does. It felt so good. Even though it was a panic and we're both drenched in sweat and mumbling <laughs> curse words at each other yeah. under our breath. Once it was done, it was so nice to have it done. And she loves her little room and it's a really sweet she loves space. It. She does. She oh, loves good. it. Right. And yeah, so that was just my big thing this week was moving her into her own room. And not even because I wanted to, because I had to. Like, I cannot resist this nesting instinct right now. And I just want to give my husband a shout out for not choking me out at any point in the last (laughs) several days because I could have used to have been sedated. And he has been so, so sweet and so supportive. You know, that's his one job is to not kill you. (laughs) You know, you're doing everything else. He just has to be a little bit patient with the craziness. Great job, babe. (laughs) Because you did the same thing the first time around, it was like week 36. I had to come to your house and I was like, Laura, we have to do this. And I was like also 36 weeks pregnant. I was like, we have to do your nursery. Yeah. I was nesting for you. 
actually the first day you, you literally drove to my home took me to target <laughs> that's hilarious with all of the gift cards i'd been hoarding for like eight years worth of teaching and we outfitted the entire nursery which just looked like a bomb went off by the time you left but at least i had it all in the room yeah. and then slowly but surely it somehow became a bedroom really just in time for them to all be born so yeah you're right i did this the first time too you really did it's less to do for him it's more getting her settled yeah. so i'm just yeah. so sensitive to the fact that you know, big change. this is going to be a big change for her. Yeah. So I just want her to feel like she's a part of all these things and they're still exciting. And she has her own space. Yep. Yeah. And, and not just because of the baby, but because I know we're getting so close. It's like, well, mm-hmm. we're going to do that right now. So well, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. What about you? Um, <laughs> I am going on. No, I'm past week three of solo parenting. So mm-hmm. in the same trenches that you all last heard of me and I also feel like this is the time of the year where you're just going to hear about sickness for a few -hmm. months because this happened around this time last year is like all we could share about was the sickness but this time I was sick I was sick and I was solo parenting and guys Mm. that was really really hard and so now I'm coming off of it and you know when you start feeling better after you've been sick for a while and you feel like a superhero you feel like you can do anything (laughs) yeah even if I'm at 80% it's like oh I can do anything and so I've been now kind of overcorrecting and biting off a little more than I can chew because I was like should I clean all the floors in my house (laughs) because I feel kind of okay I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for my health that I think I'm going to need to scrub every inch of every floor. (laughs) Yeah. And then kind of the opposite of Rachel is that I have kind of let go of an opportunity that I've been really appreciative to have. But you know how everyone has their word for the year. And I don't really do that. But for some reason, that just kind of came to me. And so this year is space. Mm. Is that last year brought a lot of new opportunities for me and I'm super grateful. But this year I'm kind of prioritizing what I really love to do and kind of getting rid of the rest and making space to what did I tell you, Laura was saying that someone had told me to honor your season. And I feel like my season right now is to be with my kids and to really enjoy this time with them. And of course, there are things that I love to do, like I love to do this podcast and there are other things that I really love to do and I want to make space for that and for my kids. And that's really it. And that's a big privilege that I'm honored to have and I know that it's a privilege. So sometimes that even means saying no. And so I said no this week and I'm proud of myself about that. So yeah, that's what's up with me. Good for you. That's exciting. I'm proud of you. So much pride in this Sharon today proud of all of you. I'm proud of me. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Especially because you have shared that we all pretty much are recovering people pleasers. So we mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. tendencies to keep ourselves in situations that are not helpful to us yep. yeah. uh, because we don't want to upset somebody else. And so it yeah. was a big step to say, you know what, I'm going to step away from this thing that I've committed time and effort to. And the hard thing too is, is when it's a good opportunity because mm-hmm. coming from a place where especially in parenthood, there aren't that many things that come along that are just for you. Yeah. And to not hang on to that too much and to know that other opportunities have and will continue to come my way and that I get to be choosy about them. And that's a nice place to be. That was a lovely Sharon. Like you said, lots of pride, lots of bodily fluids. And should we move on to the topic for today? Okay. 
So in our last episode, we started our series on math. I walked us through how we prepare our babies and toddlers for math. So today we are going to dive into primary children's house, which is ages three to six. So before we do that, let's review some of the major points from last week. And you know what? Before we actually even do that, I want to put a little disclaimer in here. We talked about this at length before doing this recording. Because this level, the children's house, primary level, whatever you prefer to call it, that's where we start to see some extremely intentionally designed math materials, right? Rachel was kind of recapping baby toddler. There are not actually Montessori designed math materials and there are not Montessori math lessons at that level. We do start to see them at this level. We start to see some pretty seriously advanced concepts being taught. We know that people are excited about this. Our listeners are awesome. They're Montessori nerds just like us. But here's the thing. We have decided it does not actually serve you to just tell you every material and every lesson that you might see in a classroom at this level and how to try to pull it off at home. We truly do hear many of you asking, but how? Tell me what to do with my kids tomorrow. I'll buy the thing. I'll make the thing. Just tell me how you do it in a classroom. The truth of it is this approach is so much deeper than a 45 to 60 minute episode full of quick tricks and tips. There are homeschooling programs and resources, and we promise that we will work on looking into some of those that we can recommend to you wholeheartedly. But in the meantime, our aim here on this podcast is going to be to explain what the goals are at this level and why, rather than giving you a list of every material that you would find in the classroom. We might reference an example here or there, but we do want to be clear that we are not teacher trainers. We're not here to tell you how to replicate teaching in your home. If we were, you would be required to listen to us for so many more hours, resulting in subject albums that are hundreds of pages long. So we firmly believe that bite-sized education equals bite-sized results. You guys deserve more than that. So that being said, let's get into it. So like Rachel said, a quick recap of what we talked about last time. If you skipped that last episode, we'll get you caught up. Dr. Montessori believed that humans, yes, all humans, no matter what your story is in your mind about it right now, we all have a mathematical mind, meaning that we have a logical mind. We use math every single day. We use it in setting our alarms in the morning. We use it when we're measuring out recipes. We use it in predicting the weather. The list is endless. Our minds even find math beautiful. We love symmetry. It's actually a pretty well-known fact that we are attracted to faces that are more symmetrical. Babies especially are super attracted to symmetrical images and symmetrical faces. We love the golden ratio. We love the rule of thirds. Even if you don't know what that means, your mind is super attracted to it. You probably have accidentally incorporated it in design in your home. You have come across it in everything from TV shows like comedy shows. The rule of thirds is like a really great way to kind of incorporate the same joke up to three times. It's like a it's like a formula for writing things that people just respond naturally to. So math genuinely helps us to develop good judgment, to assess situations, and basically to thrive. So Maria Montessori believed that when children were given mental mathematics and not concrete, tangible introduction to mathematics, but just math on paper, basically told to memorize formulas and things like that, it divorced them from that naturally mathematical mind. Development is slow. It needs to have a foundation of support and nurturing from the environment. If children get to love math while they're forming their personalities, they can carry that with them forever. Not 
what happened for most of us in a traditional educational setting. So Megan, let's kick it over to you to talk about today. I am going to start by apologizing if you hear my child in the background. Like Laura said, we don't record this in a fancy studio. We do it in our homes with our children around and our families and just normal life going on. So I'm sorry, but that's what's happening. So we're going to take a deep dive into the Montessori curriculum at the primary level, ages three to six. Through each area of the classroom, we always talk about exposure and giving the child concrete experiences. It is no different when it comes to math. First and foremost, mathematical concepts are to be handled concretely before moving to abstraction. At a very young age, children are literally holding materials in their hands. Maria Montessori called these materialized abstractions. Our goal is to offer concrete experiences first and lay a strong foundation in math. So we're going to kind of piggyback on what Rachel started with. For about ages two and a half to four, we're going to really just focus on practical life. And we talked about being patient about this and that there is a real reason that we do this. And first is that we need to build up some independence. In order to be successful in the math area, they need to be able to build up independence enough to be successful with their math work. So we're going to start with this first Practical life offers the ability to build up concentration, and this is necessary for success in math and a reason that it should be prioritized before the introduction to math. The next one is control of movement. In practical life, it's a lot about controlling the movement, strengthening the hand, and this is needed to be able to manipulate the math materials. A lot of them are small. A lot of them are delicate, and they need to be able to have the control over their body to be able to handle these materials. And order. These materials will be orderly. And so we want to offer exposure to order before in these practical life activities. Any clarifications for practical life? Again, that's pretty much what Rachel described as the work that's being done in the baby and toddler level. Mm -hmm. If you're totally completely new to us and joining us today practical life just refers to literally practical life skills such as washing a plate or helping cook things i just said a lot of those mathematical mind things come in when doing everyday tasks Mm -hmm. so literally just involving them in everyday tasks sweeping the floor wiping up a spill putting on a sock and then a shoe those are all examples of what megan is talking about where you have to be some level of independent, you have to be able to concentrate, you have to control your movement, it's working on gross and fine motor skills. And there's some sort of order to the process. And that is Mm -hmm. all laying that foundation. So just in case practical life was something that you were like, wait, what does that mean? That's what we mean by that. It's literally practical life skills that everybody needs to get through their day. The next thing that is a indirect preparation for math that is different than in toddler is sensorial materials and sensorial activities. Now, we haven't talked much about sensorial in the Montessori classroom yet, but if you are familiar with Montessori, you might recognize some of the materials in this area, like the pink tower, the brown stair, or the red rods. A lot of people confuse this area with like sensory bins and having sensory experiences. That is not the same thing. The qualities of the materials are 
isolated. So we're isolating a certain sense through the materials. So smell, taste, sound, touch, sight, discrimination of color and dimension, and then also stereognostic sense. So the qualities of the sensorial materials are mathematical by design. The patterns of presentations also prepare for math, like matching, which is equivalency, grading, sorting, and we talked about this a lot at the toddler level with Rachel. Language, naming and abstraction. So that is a huge part of math is being able to use a symbol for an abstract idea. And lastly, games. We talked about this a little bit before. That's used in the sensorial area and it's about developing memory, which we need in mathematics. It's about, you know, seeing red on one mat and needing to hold that red in your memory and go find red across the room on a different mat. So we're working up that memory through those games. Pause for discussion. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like that you share that because I'm thinking of in my toddler classroom, I have my sensorial shelf and I have like a sound, no sound lesson. And that's super simple because, right, I have a bell with no little chime thing in the middle and then I have a bell that makes sound. And it's just fun to hear the progression of now they're doing it in a primary, but in bigger and better ways. Yeah. And I just I've talked a lot about how we don't start math typically until age four. And it's not that we're not doing math. So all of this is math and it's really important and it's building a really strong foundation. And I don't want anyone to feel like this part, this indirect preparation isn't important because it is going to build a really strong foundation and get them ready. And I just don't want it to be skipped over or be an afterthought of like, let's get to math. Let's get to math. You are doing math if you're really focusing on these practical life activities and exploring the sensorial area, which again, we haven't talked much about, but if you're doing Montessori homeschooling, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's interesting because, you know, I'm not children's house trained, but I've been in children's house classrooms tons of times. Of course, I'm familiar with the pink tower and the brown stairs. I actually did not realize that these were categorized as a sensorial area of the classroom. I thought they were math, just like really early math, which technically is exactly what you're saying that they are. I just didn't know that they had their own name as sensorial Mm -hmm. because I remember learning that the pink tower, which if you've never seen one, is just a tower of cubes, all these individual cubes that sit on top of each other. There's a large one at the bottom and they go up, up, up until there's a little tiny pink cube sitting at the top. looks like a little skyscraper, kind of like a little pink Empire State Building. And the kids are super drawn to it and they love to stack it and make shapes out of it and do all kinds of things. And I remember learning and training in the very quick children's house overview before you get to Lower L that they are designed to be What's the ratio between them, Megan? The top one is like a tenth of the bottom cube. Yeah, so there is um, a mathematical mm-hmm. relationship. There's a unit of difference between each. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that the progression of just those three things. So, I mean, I could talk about these materials forever, but the progression of those three things specifically, the red rods, there's one dimension changing in that material. The brown stairs, two dimensions are changing. The pink tower, three dimensions are changing. So we're really building through each material and making it more and more complex each time and pointing out a different aspect of the dimensional shape and change 
each time you introduce a new material, which is really cool and really interesting. When you look at all the sensorial materials, they really hyper-focus and isolate one quality and one quality of that sense, which is really, I mean, it's genius. If you if you have time to really sit down, I mean, maybe we'll do an episode on it sometime, but if you have time to really explore those sensorial materials, they're amazing and wonderful. And if you are doing Montessori homeschooling, I would 100% invest in those materials instead of feeling like you need to just skip to math. Yeah. And by skip to math, we mean more just teaching operations, right? Maybe you're even familiar with the bead bars, the different colored bead mm-hmm. bars and skipping to that before you even do that. Right. This sensorial introduction, like you said, is just such a genius way. It looks like if you walk in and you're untrained or even if you're trained at a different level, you can walk in and it looks like they're building blocks. It looks like they're toys with matching cards and all of that stuff, but they are all very, very mathematically designed in such intentional ways that you're not yet even beginning to tackle an operation. But these three through four year olds are actually working with very advanced mathematical concepts. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the solid cylinder box is working with base 10, is working with sorting dimensions, weight, length, shape. Those are all mathematical concepts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we really want to geek out, you know how cool it is to match the pink tower to the cubes in the bead cabinet, which... They're the same, which is really cool. Anyway, let's move on to what you're all here for, what you're excited about. Hopefully we didn't scare you with the beginning of our intro telling you what we're not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to get into when we do start formally introducing math. So this is going to happen around age four. And there are six groups of materials. And there's kind of a formula that we follow for each group. We start with the quantity that is the physical concrete material. And if you have Montessori materials available to you, the first example of quantity in this formula would be the number rods. If you don't have Montessori materials available to you, an example of quantity could be, let's say, sticks. A single stick is the quantity one. Two sticks is the quantity two, and so on. After the child has manipulated and explored counting physical quantities and learns from these concrete materials, we then present the symbol of the quantity on its own, the number, the numeral, the numeral, the one that we would write on paper. We are isolating difficulty by doing it this way. And after they have been introduced to the quantity, they've been introduced to the symbol, then and only then do we connect them by putting symbol and quantity together. We call this association. This is where most of us started, right? Trace the one, shade in one apple on your worksheet. The learning comes from the child's own work with these materials, and they get to make their own discoveries, which is really cool. And lastly, in this formula, there will be a test and the test will signal to us as the guide or the parent whether or not the child is ready to move on to the next group of materials. And of course, this test is not like a test I've ever had or a test that probably most of you have ever had. It's more like a game. It's fun. It's social. And it signals to the adult whether the child is ready to move on. And the cool thing is the child doesn't know that this is a test or that we are assessing them in some way, they're just having fun. So to kind of recap our steps and our formula within each of these six groups, 
is quantity, symbol, associate quantity and symbol, and a test. Do you feel like you could explain what a test might look like then? Because obviously it's so foreign from what any of us in a traditional setting ever would have experienced. When you say test, I'm thinking paper, pencil, even an oral exam is just like, tell me what this is. You know, prove (laughs) to me that you You know this. This much time finished by this time. Right, right, right. So what does, what would this test look like? So an example of a test would be in group one, we're learning about zero and one through 10. So a test that we would do at the end of group one could be that I invite my friends to a rug, Rachel and Laura and Megan, they're going to come to a rug and I'm going to see if they are able to now associate the numbers that they've learned with the environment. Are they able to take this away from the materials and apply it into the outside world? So I might have like a little pouch that has numbers that I've written on a card and it's filled up with all the numbers that I hope that they know at this point. And I hand one to each of them and I say, okay, don't share it with anybody. I would like you to go get that many pencils. Laura has the number three. She goes and brings back three pencils. Rachel has five and I ask her to go get that many washcloths and she goes and gets that many washcloths. I ask Megan, Megan, I would like you to scream that many times. Maybe I have zero and so I don't do anything and I understand what zero is. So that signals to me as the adult when they're bringing back the correct quantities that they really understand this concept, that they're able to do it outside, away from the materials without needing to be with the materials and associate it with their environment. And so then I'd be like, okay, great. We're going to move on to our next group. Love that. Thank you. That's a very simple way yeah, I was perfect. to explain a version of a test that absolutely would feel like a fun game. Oh my yeah, goodness. I would like, like, I want to play that right now. Can you give me a number on a <laughs> you know, piece of paper and, and you know, see if, if I know if, it? If Laura was to go away and to bring me back four pencils instead of three, it's not the test where she gets the red X and I call her parents. It's just a signal to me as an adult. She's just having fun if she brings back four. It's fine. I'm going to use my observation skills Mm -hmm. and think what is it that she's not quite understanding and what can we revisit and how can I support her? So yeah, it's really cool. It's a no shame, fun, but also helpful way for the adult to help the child. Okay. Thank you. Go on. Okay, so I am going to go over each group and kind of summarize why we introduce them in this order. And if you have specific questions about the sequence within these groups, please reach out to us. But my hope is that you can refer to the steps I just explained and you can kind of put together which material, if you have it, goes into which step. And that'll make you feel a little more confident and comfortable adapting with whatever you have at home as most homeschoolers don't have every material at home. And sometimes your child goes to a school and if they already go to a Montessori school, maybe this will just give you some insight to what they're doing during their day. So group one, I just explained was the concept of numbers. So one through 10 and zero. Now, I think Laura cut in an episode where I talk about zero. (laughs) I did. I did. I did. Yeah. (laughs) 
Sorry. And zero has different functions. This zero that is in this group is just the absence of a quantity. So sometimes it's a, it's a placeholder. This time it's just nothing. The purpose of this group is to experience and understand the quantities and symbols. Instead of memorizing, we want children to truly be able to count in one-to-one correspondence, to recognize the symbol and those quantities, and ultimately to be able to associate them to their environment. In other words, we don't want them to just memorize one, two, three, four, five. We want them to understand what three is in any order and any orientation by offering concrete materials that they can manipulate. The group is incredibly important. If you don't do any of the other ones, I would like you to do this one because our entire number system is built on these numbers. If you know these numbers, you can do anything. So that's group one. Can I ask a quick question there? Yeah. So if you say like we want them to understand what three is in any order orientation, you mean if three is in the units place versus if three is in a tens place, now it's become 30. If no it's an elementary hundreds. person. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, oh, by orientation, she must mean place value. But what do you mean? No, no. I mean, if I have, say, my number rods, which if you're unfamiliar, it's like a stick. It's like a rod and they're colored red, blue, red, blue. And if I have, say, the rod that is three, I can put it anywhere on my rug. I can put it after five. I can put it before six. I can put it anywhere. And it's still three. It doesn't need to be between one and two for me to understand that that's three. Oh, okay. So if you take a number out of order, you can still identify what that number is. Mm-hmm. Or I can count up the number line of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and I can also do it backwards. It doesn't need to be in that specific order for me to know what three is. I got you. So yeah, okay. so because you're not relying on just having memorized the sounds mm-hmm. that come in this specific order. We were talking mm-hmm. about that at the toddler level as they can say one, two, three, four, five. But at that point, they're more likely have memorized the sounds yeah. in that right. order than right. the they actual understanding know. of mm-hmm. the quantity. Okay, yep. got you, got you, got you. Thank you. Yes, no. Our elementary person <laughs> is already thinking about place value. I was not value. even thinking about that. So <laughs> <laughs> clearly we're at different she levels can't here. Help it. She can't I help can't, it. Yeah. I can't help it. But if I'm thinking that, there's got to be at least one person listening who's like, oh, that must be what she means, right? Like somebody back yes. me up. Somebody else out there I'm was saying the same thing I was I'm thinking. No, I'm glad that you asked. So any questions about that? Nope. Okay. I'm good now. So group two is the decimal system. Don't run away. Don't turn off the podcast. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Let's talk about it. (laughs) The purpose of this group is to give a broad impressionistic understanding of the decimal system. It sounds scary. I feel like it it sounds sounds scary. scary. It does. I I used to be. I still am somewhat (laughs) terrified of decimals. So why a decimal system for four-year-olds? Most of you probably immediately picture a decimal number like 0.5 or a numerical representation of a fraction number. Am I losing you? No, you're not losing me. I'll tell you right now. I put that (laughs) sentence in there because when when I read decimal system as group two, I was like, what? I don't remember them doing this in children's house. Like I've never had a kid come to lower L who knew what decimal numbers were because that's immediately what I thought of 0.5, a numerical representation of a fraction number, a number that is less than one whole. I was like, no, no, no. They are only focusing on whole numbers. What is she talking about? (laughs) 
Well, that is not what you're talking about. <laughs> Basically, it's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the decimal system is just a pattern of one through 10. And in the United States and in a lot of places in the world, we are working with a base 10 system. 10 units makes 10, 10 tens makes 100, and 10 hundreds makes 1,000, and so on and so forth. And infinity. A huge part at the elementary level, which I think the adults listening to this can appreciate, is when we introduce new concepts that come with new vocabulary, we often will break down where the words came from because honestly, a lot of times it helps understand the concept a little bit better because Megan said decimal system, but the word decimal just comes from the Latin word decimus, which means 10th. The Greek word deca also means 10th. So Latin and Greek both obviously shaped a lot of our language. So the decimal place value system then is just a way of counting and recording numbers using 10 as a base for the grouping. So it actually does not necessarily at all mean what I immediately went to and what a you decimal, immediately went like to. Point three yeah, point something, something, something like fraction numbers. Mm -hmm. We do also use the word decimal to explain those kinds of numbers. But what Megan is talking about is purely the most basic form of the word, which is 10 groups of 10. So giving big impressionistic and exact quantities, there are actually a thousand beads in a cube that we would give a child. We physically give them 1,000 to fully experience. We don't give them a number. We don't write something on paper. We give them a thousand beads and say, this is a thousand. With the exact and proportional materials, it gives them a key to our entire number system as well as operations. So addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. So this is where you will see children doing all of those operations when they are just counting to 10. The reason that we would give them this so early is because why not? They can count to 10. So why not do addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division into the thousands, ten thousands? Because they can. And it's, it's fun. It's a game. And they have these materials that are proportional and exact to be able to experience these operations. We're not sitting them down, forcing them, hitting their wrists with a ruler. It's fun. They love to do it. The golden bead operations, right? That's what they're often called, the material, which again, we're not harping on the exact materials. Right. But if you do have a kid in a children's house classroom and you hear them say like, oh, I wore golden, golden beads, beads today. They're literally what Megan is saying, these physical representations. You have one little tiny bead all by itself as a unit. There's a string of 10 of them held together with a little metal wire, by the way. Like when she said we hand them a thousand beads, they are absolutely <laughs> stuck <laughs> together in that yeah. cube. They are not loose. Please do not give your child a thousand Can loose you beads and imagine? be like, you guys are the worst. That did not work. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's so cool because it's in a cube because it's 10 tens, which is a cube her eyes got so big. It's a cube. It's illogical. I mean, that's like ten, ten times. literally in your hand. It's a cube. Like it yeah. But, but of course, when that was introduced to me, my teacher was just like, hey, Megan, put a little tiny three up here. And I was like, okay. And I didn't really know what it was. And yeah. I didn't really know what it meant. Yeah. So right. if you also don't know what we're talking about, then you are in good company because a lot of us didn't experience math this way. And it's such a gift. 
to be able to give our children these experiences that are purposeful, that are exact, that they don't have to use those mental mathematics until they have a solid understanding of what on earth they're talking about. Yeah, I love your example of basically being taught to carry over a number, right? If you really, truly understand place value and how to manipulate place value, then you understand why a little one floats over to this spot because I have exceeded the amount that can fit in my units allocation, right? But that's not how I experienced it. I just memorized just put that you one put up here. You have a two-digit two number, put that digit over there. I don't know why, but I'm just going to trust that that's the right way to do it. So yeah, it is. It's a gift. Okay, so our next grouping is teens and tens. Now, some people will do this before group two. So these don't need to be sequential. Some people really want to do teens and tens first, and I will talk about why, but I have this in group three because I'm trained to do it in group three. So the purpose of group three is to give children language for linear counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, all, all the way through. Due to the irregularities of our language in numbers, like 11, why? We have 1, 21, 31, 11. Yeah. So <laughs> why? 11 and 12 <laughs> specifically. But, the, but then the pattern switches and does make more like 13 is close enough mm -hmm. to 3 teen. And then 14, 15 is close to 5 teen, 16, 17, 18, 19. But 11 and 12, why isn't it not 1 teen, 2 teen? Right. Yeah. Or a lot of languages, they literally will say, 10 and one. Ten one. And one, yeah. Which, of course, we don't do. Or they'll say three tens and one, but we say 30. It makes no sense. And so this group is purely to give children the language that they need to be able to count because we need it. So when we're doing the decimal system, we do count in that way. So we'd say one unit, two units, three units. And then when you move to tens, it'd be one ten, two tens, three tens. 100, 200, 300, 1,000, 2,000s, 3,000s. And we have to circle back because at some point they do need to be able to count in a linear way and they still need that language. But you can decide where you want to put that in your groupings. I think that's interesting. I think I probably understood it in a reverse order that I would have known the word 31 but not necessarily had a really concrete understanding of that meant three tens in one unit. Yeah, right. Exactly. Definitely. Exactly. Okay. And the last group that we will talk about. So like I said, there's six, but it starts to go into elementary. So the things that like I'm trained on in primary, I'm also trained on at the beginning of elementary. And so they overlap, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. But a lot of children aren't going to make it to these groups in primary. So we're going to let Laura take that away for our next math. So we'll stop where most children may stop in primary. So group four is memorization. Now at this point, the child has lots and lots and lots of experiences and opportunities to work with quantities and operations. They can begin to memorize what the numerals on paper represent without always having to hold and match the quantity in their hands. We do not start here, which is where a lot of us actually did start. We started at memorization. One plus two is three. Maybe not knowing exactly what we were doing, but we were just memorizing it. 
At least that's what I was doing. So we are still using materials, but they just isolate memorizing problems or equations like three plus seven equals 10. The purpose of this group is to give children quick math facts, which they do need to be able to help them be successful in longer and more complex operations that will be to come. Because of course, we don't want them just to memorize, but that doesn't mean memorization is necessarily bad. If you do know what you're memorizing, if you're able to make that connection, it helps you to solve problems. Well, yeah, because you have to think about some of the more complex operations coming include, I mean, we already talked about dynamic addition and subtraction where you have to carry things or borrow things back and forth. But then we're also going to eventually at the LE level, we're going to get into massive multiplication and division problems. Within multiplication are all these tiny little addition problems. And if every time you do a multiplication problem, you're bogged down by having to check real quick, wait, what was five plus seven? And you don't just know that it's 12 every time. It's going to start to really hamper your ability to work through these more complex operations and enjoy it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, and I know for some adults who didn't have to memorize these things, it can be kind of embarrassing when you're sitting there and like literally having to count on your fingers as a 30 whatever year old, or if you're trying to do some kind of simple math and, you know, comes across like eight times four and you're not sure what it is and 32 doesn't come right to your head, then it can really be a competence killer as well. For sure. And that was 100% me, by the way, until I not even through training, it was actually when I got into the classroom with my former co-teacher who had these skip counting songs that we taught the kids because everything is easier to learn in a song. I know the songs now because of your co-teacher. Yeah, they're amazing. (laughs) Now I know my six, seven and eight multiplication tables. Exactly. Before that, I had like some of my math facts (laughs) memorized and others I would get to a certain amount and then just count on my fingers from there. It was very embarrassing. Yeah. But now I know them because of working in a Montessori classroom. Yeah. So I get it. If you're someone who's like, when she just said eight times four, I did not know 32 right away. I feel you. I feel you on that. And that's that's what we're trying to avoid. It is. is these children getting to adulthood and, and not being 100 percent sure. Right. And, the, and what it does really at that point is it deters them from wanting to try harder things because it's just an obstacle in the way of a more complex math concept is that they can't actually absorb that concept because they're bogged down by simple math facts. So that is something that we do work on and start to memorize at that point. So the other groups that do happen in primary, but are more happening in elementary is group five, which is the passage to abstraction, which we'll talk about later and fractions, which we'll talk about later. So that is my summary of primary math, ages three to six. Love it. I think it was great. Thank you. I agree. I was interested to hear that your training even covers group five, passage to abstraction and group six fractions, because I don't think in my 10 years and in lower L classroom, I ever had a children's house 
student come to me even having been introduced to them yet. So that's, I think that's your point. You're aware of it as a teacher. It's good to know in case that child does come every once in a while that's ready. But that's an exception, not a rule. So please don't feel like your three through six-year-old needs to be working on abstract math or fraction concepts. Yes, we will hit that in lower elementary. And we've talked about what's happening as the child is changing from the first plane to the second plane is that mind is changing. And so that passage to abstraction is really very well suited for the child in the second plane. So definitely more developmentally appropriate at that point. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Megan, I think that that was fantastic. And thank you for answering all of my questions specifically (laughs) throughout that whole process. I say we finish out the show with our favorite segment, Confessions from the Wild. What do you ladies got for me this week? Well, I'm just sitting here looking at, um, I know you all can't see it, but I'm looking at my toddler's little RC and Woody he got in uh, Disney World. And um, I just realized I chucked this thing the other day when I stepped on it and it looks like Woody lost an arm. Oh, he did. He's Uh-oh. definitely down an arm. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really Montessori of me to chuck RC and Woody lost an arm. So <laughs> great job, Mom. That's Toy great Story job. 5 <laughs> when Woody loses his arm. When Woody loses his arm. Oh, man. We've all been there. And in fact, that reminds me that Megan and I both have said many a time that probably one of our favorite things on this planet is when sweet, peaceful, calm Rachel loses it just loses her damn mind (laughs) and like the swear words come out and the claws come out and it always comes out of nowhere like just aggression and not towards us it's not like she is aggressive towards us but sometimes i don't know you're like whoa rachel calm down (laughs) (laughs) i know like everyone expects it of me and it's not too much of a surprise from megan honestly if you live five seconds of megan's life it's like how do you ever keep it together as calmly as you do megan but rachel it's always so satisfying and i'm such i'm so bad i poke the bear i'm like yeah 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 rachel (laughs) yes more f-bombs let's go let's do it so i'm just always shocked i'm just like oh Rachel, oh my goodness. I feel, you know, I feel like a Southern woman in church. I'm like, <laughs> Which ironically is Rachel 99% of the time. <laughs> my stars. My stars. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I love it. Oh gosh. All right. I did come prepared this week. I did think of one and it is that I have this super toxic trait of not being able to accept that there are certain commodities in your daily life that are meant to be replaced and replenished regularly. And I like refuse. I refuse to replace the most easy to replace things. Okay. Like I have cut open the opposite end of a toothpaste tube before (laughs) to scrape it out with my toothbrush (laughs) instead of buying more toothpaste. I have refilled soap with water way too many times oh my my gosh you're my husband and the thing that reminded me of this was the other night when i was 
honestly scraping the skin off of my eyeballs rather than removing the makeup because I am down to the very last makeup remover wipe and should have just dried out. (laughs) It's dry. It's like covered in other blotches of mascara. (laughs) I'm finding like the one white corner left and just throwing a town under my eye, which just makes it look way like I should have just left the smeared makeup there because now I look like I don't even know what I look like, but um, it's a problem, guys. Like, what is my deal? I think you just repackage this as a very trendy of like, you are sustainable. You are a minimalist. You are going <laughs> to use yeah. it until it's finished, which is very, you're actually on trend. So mm-hmm. I'm so hip right now, guys. Look at you. She just cares about the earth. You're so resourceful. It might be the most Montessori thing about me, really. Yeah. You know, I would have been inclined to agree with you on all of those things, Megan, until I realized that my eyes were red from scraping them with this dry old makeup remover wipe that needed to be thrown away like two weeks ago and replaced for sure. It's like a couple of dollars to replace all of the things that I refuse <laughs> to replace. But uh, yeah, we're just going to go with I'm on trend and I mm-hmm. love my planet and I am doing the Lord's work. So yeah, yep, she's doing her part. Yeah. There you go. Do yours. <laughs> Do yours. <laughs> I love that you flipped you know, that. I just bought new toothpaste. <laughs> I'm jealous. I am still <laughs> squeezing <laughs> the very last of my... Do I need to send you some I'll give scooch. you my old tube. You can probably get the rest of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, can I, can I get your scrap tubes? I'll get it out. I will get that toothpaste out. <laughs> Actually, sadly, Megan, you did send me like 15 tubes <laughs> of children's toothpaste, which I is totally stole her toothpaste, her <laughs> child's toothpaste. And I felt so bad about it that I sent her like a metric a year's, of toothpaste. A year's supply of children's toothpaste because <laughs> I felt guilty about it. And that's my toxic trait. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I really like how this turned from being embarrassing for me to a problem for everyone else. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Relatable. Okay. So here is my confession and it's actually very embarrassing. So yesterday I was practice teaching all day. So I'm in a classroom teaching a a class and I get home and I'm taking care of my kids and I don't have my husband home. So I'm doing all the things alone, making dinner and getting them bathed and getting their lunches back, doing everything to get them set for the day. I get them down, asleep for the night. And I go into my bedroom and I was like, I'm going to take a nice hot bath. And like, how nice does that sound at, at the end of a long day with just millions of children? So I get in the bath and about not even halfway of filling it, the water just goes out. It's just gone. And I was like, of course, of course. So I get out and I put my pants back on and my father-in-law lives, (laughs) my father-in-law lives like four houses down. And so I call him and I was like, I don't know what happened, but the water is not turning on. He walks to the house and he is talking to me and he's trying to like talk about like what happened and and trying to figure out what could potentially be wrong. He's there for I don't know like half an hour and we're talking and walking around and trying to figure out what's wrong with the why the water's not working and he leaves and after he leaves I realize that the whole time I had my underwear <laughs> wrapped around my ankle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
because when I had gone to take a bath, I took off my pants and my underwear together. And when I put them back on, I didn't realize they were still in the leg of my pants. So my old, dirty underwear were wrapped around my ankle while I'm just hanging out with him. And like, I hope to God that he did not see and he hopefully has no idea and hopefully never listens to this podcast. I was like, <laughs> and it, yeah, yeah. So that's what happened to um, me. I can just see you walking around your house. They're like dragging along just on the around bottom. around my ankle like a bracelet, an anklet. Like a bracelet. I, yeah. as soon as you said... That your father-in-law walked over and you put your pants back on. (laughs) I had to start sliding my chair slowly away from my microphone because I knew whenever we got to whatever you were going to (laughs) realize that it was going to be immaculate. It was going to be so good. And this is what I mean by if you just lived five minutes of Megan's (laughs) life, you would expect her to be my bright blue song. (laughs) like it wasn't like it wasn't like a you know heather gray like gonna blend in kind of like no it was it was and it was an aggressive garment of underwear yeah i actually almost want to take a second to unpack how it is that you're wearing a thong at this stage in your life because that sounds absolutely freaking miserable to me what kind of pants were you wearing here just jeans. You could not pay me to wear a thong at this stage oh of my, my gosh, life. No. I'm going to assume that all your comfortable granny panties were in the laundry because yeah. what kind That's all of- you had left. <laughs> right, you must have been just scraping at the bottom of the dresser drawer for thongs. I mean, is this confession <laughs> part right. two? You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. We don't have time to unpack. Let's talk about my underwear drawer. Yeah, I, I can have some confessions there. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't wear granny panties because like, let's get specific because just like my butt eats them. Yeah. Well, like, like a thong? Like, that's the thing is like, if, if it's going to eat it anyway, at least it can be minimal. It's <laughs> a little bit of fabric being it's eaten. a little bit of fabric. Crap, my computer's going to die. All right, let's wrap it. Let's wrap it up. Thank you for listening to Montessori Moms in the Wild. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us, subscribe, review, and rate. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, and iHeartRadio. You can follow us on Instagram at Montessori Moms in the Wild or email us at Montessori Moms in the Wild at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, stay wild.